Section 8 of The Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley Jones. The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley. Chapter 5 The King's Palace. The Tower. The Tower of London has existed for over eight centuries, and long before the conquest, the site was occupied by a Roman fortification. It is the most time-honoured building in Great Britain, and probably the foremost building, not a ruin, in the world. With so much in London that is new, it is a source of the deepest pride to every Londoner that there is a relic of the past of unequalled interest, on whose walls are written the chief incidents of the history of England. The name has long been a puzzle, but Mr. Horace Round has explained it, and thus thrown a fresh light upon the study of Norman military architecture. There were two different kinds of fortified places during the medieval period, viz. 1. The Roman castrum or castellum, which survived in the fortified enclosure, and 2. The medieval mot or tour, which survived in the central keep. When the tour coalesced with the castellum, a name was required for the entire fortress. Sometimes the keep was added to the castle, and sometimes the castle to the keep. It was then a question which word should prevail. Tour, turris, or chastel, castellum. Generally the word castle has prevailed, but the respective strongholds in the capitals of Normandy and England were the Tour de Rouen and the Tower of London. Gray alludes to the Towers of Julius, and Shakespeare's reference to the place is equally erroneous. Prince Edward, I do not like the tower of any place. Did Julius Caesar build that place, my lord? Buckingham, he did, my gracious lord, begin that place, which since succeeding ages have re-edified. Prince Edward, is it upon record, or else reported successively from age to age, he built it? Buckingham, Upon record, my gracious lord. Richard III, Act Three, Scene One. Of course, Julius Caesar had nothing to do with the tower, but the Roman remains that have been discovered on the site prove that this grand strategical position had been utilised from the early period of London's history. Mr. George T. Clarke writes, quote, When having crossed the Thames, the conqueror marched in person to complete the investment of London, he found that ancient city resting upon the left bank of its river, protected on its landward side by a strong wall, a Roman work, with mural towers and an exterior ditch. End quote. In 1777, some Roman coins were discovered, and a double wedge of silver inscribed Ex Officina Honorii, which makes the conjecture probable that at this early period, as in later times, the buildings on the site of the tower were used as a mint. William the Conqueror was crowned in 1066, and Mr. Clark says that, quote, It was from Barking, immediately after the ceremony, that he directed the actual commencement of the works, which were no doubt, at first, a deep ditch and strong palisade. For the keep, probably the earliest work in masonry, appears not to have been begun until twelve or fourteen years later. End quote. The keep, known later as the White Tower, was built by Gundulf, a monk of Beck, who, in 1077, 
soon after his arrival in England, was consecrated Bishop of Rochester. We learn from the Textus Rafensis, written about the year 1143, that Gundulf, while employed upon the tower, lodged at the house of Edmer Anhund, a burgess of London, but he is not supposed to have commenced the building until 1078. A great work such as the construction of the Tower of London took many years to complete. It is supposed that although the conqueror, to a great extent, planned the fortress, he did not build more than the inner ward. The existing curtain of the inner ward, nine to twelve feet thick and from thirty-nine to forty feet high, is thought by Clark to be the work of William Rufus. In November 1091, there was a violent storm which did immense damage in London. Stowe says in his chronicle that, quote, The Tower of London was also broken, end quote. And in the survey, he further writes that the tower was sore shaken by the tempest of wind, but was repaired by William Rufus and Henry I. Clark doubts this, but adds that the outworks, both wall and towers, if in course of construction with scaffolding about them, probably suffered severely. He further writes, quote, The tower, therefore, of the close of the reign of Rufus, and of those of Henry I and Stephen, was probably composed of the white tower, with a palace ward upon its southeast side, and a wall, probably that we now see, and certainly along its general course, including what is known as the inner ward. No doubt there was a ditch, but probably not a very formidable one. End quote. Fitzstephen is not very full in his description of the tower. He merely says, quote, On the east stands the Palatine Tower, a fortress of great size and strength, the court and walls of which are erected upon a very deep foundation, the mortar used in the building being tempered with the blood of beasts. End quote. The tower is believed to owe much to Henry III, who made extensive alterations and additions. The new works were unpopular among the citizens, and, as some of them were unfortunate, a legend came into existence to account for the misfortune. St. Thomas's Tower and the Traitor's Gate beneath it were in course of construction in 1240, when on St. George's Night the gateway and wall fell down. They were at once re-erected, but in the following year, they again fell down. The story, as told by Matthew Paris, is that on the night of the second fall, a certain grave and reverend priest saw a robed archbishop, cross in hand, who gazed sternly upon the walls, with which the king was then girdling the tower, and striking them sharply asked, Why build ye here? On which the newly built work fell, as though shattered by an earthquake. The priest, too alarmed to accost the prelate, addressed himself to the shade of an attendant clerk. Who then is the archbishop? St. Thomas the Martyr was the answer. By birth a citizen, who resents these works, undertaken in scorn, and to the prejudice of the citizens, and destroys them beyond the power of restoration. On which the priest remarked, What outlay and labour of the hands he has destroyed? Had it been, said the clerk, simply that the starving and needy artificers thence promised themselves food, it had been tolerable. But seeing that the works were undertaken, not for the defence of the realm, but to the hurt of the citizens, even had not St. Thomas destroyed them, they had been swept away utterly by St. Edmund, his successor. 
This was Edmund of Abingdon who died in 1240. The works were resumed, and in spite of the powerful opposition of St. Thomas, they were completely successful, and the rebuilding was strong and satisfactory. The outer ward is supposed to have been completed by Henry III. It is a strip of from 20 feet to 110 feet in breadth, which completely surrounds the inner ward, and is itself contained within the ditch, of which its wall forms the scarp. The tower has been, one, a fortress, and so it remains to the present day, two, a palace, and three, a prison. We can now consider it under these three aspects, merely mentioning in passing that it was also a mint, an armory, and a record office. The Tower as a Fortress It was regarded as impregnable in the reign of Stephen, when it was specially required by the king as a fortress, and during the whole medieval period it was always a place of strong defence. It does not appear ever to have endured a siege of any importance, but if it had, it would doubtless have successfully resisted attack. The Bywood Tower is the great gatehouse of the outer ward, and the middle tower is its outwork. There was formerly a drawbridge across the ditch or moat, where now there is a stone bridge 130 feet wide. The gateway to the bloody or garden tower is the main entrance to the inner ward. The inner ward is enclosed within a curtain wall having four sides, twelve mural towers, and a gatehouse. Wakefield Tower, known also as the Record Tower and as the Hall Tower, is, in its lower story, next in antiquity to the White Tower. Commencing with Wakefield and passing westward, the towers are Bloody, where the Duke of Clarence is supposed to have been drowned in Malmsey, and the two sons of Edward IV smothered. Bell, so called from an alarm bell in the little turret. Beauchamp, from Thomas de Beauchamp, Earl of Warwick, and also called Cobham Tower, after Lord Cobham. Devereux, after Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, also called Robin the Devil's Tower. Flint. Bowyer, so called because it was the residence and workshop of the royal maker of bows. Brick, previously Burbage. Martin, or Jewel, at one time styled Brick Tower. Constables. Broad Arrow. Salt, meaning saltpetre. In the 16th century, it was known as Julius Caesar's Tower. And Lanthorn, called in 1532 the New Tower. It was pulled down in 1788 after a fire. The wall of the outer ward has upon it bold drum bastions at the angles of the north front, and the south or Thames front is protected by five mural towers, of which one covers the land gate and one the water gate, and two others are connected with posterns. These towers are Devlin, called Gallimay's Tower in 4th Richard II, Well, Cradle, St. Thomas's, over Traitor's Gate, and Bywood. Mr. Clark writes, quote, The tower, at the commencement of the present century, was an extraordinary jumble of ancient and later buildings, the towers and walls being almost completely encrusted by the small official dwellings by which the area was closely occupied. 
A great fire in 1841 removed the unsightly armoury of James II and William III on the north of the inner ward, but the authorities at the time were not ripe for a fire. The armoury was replaced by a painfully durable Tudor barrack, and the repairs and additions were made with little reference to the character of the fortress. More recently, the general improvement in public taste has made its way even into the tower. End quote. The tower is still a fortress. Each night, the medieval ceremony of locking the gates takes place, after which no one can enter without the password, and this, after the manner at fortresses, is changed daily. The password is always communicated to the Lord Mayor, who each quarter receives a list containing the password for each day in the coming three months. Residents in the tower can enter until twelve midnight, when the wickets are locked by the yeoman on watch duty, and no one is allowed to enter after that hour, unless they give the password. At a few minutes before eleven, the yeoman porter takes his keys and applies to the sergeant for the escort for the keys. The sergeant acquaints the officer, and the officer placing the guard under arms furnishes a sergeant and four men. Two of the men are unarmed. Their duty is to assist in closing the gates and to carry the ancient lantern which contains a tallow candle. The procession is formed and the yeoman porter with the keys places himself in the midst of the escort. He goes the round of the gates, and when he returns to the main guard, the sentry at the guardroom challenges, Halt! Who comes there? The keys, replies the yeoman porter. Whose keys? King Edward's keys. Advance, King Edward's keys. The yeoman porter places himself in front of the guard. The guard present arms, and the yeoman porter says, God preserve King Edward. And the guard, from the officer to the drummer, answer, Amen. The keys are then carried by the yeoman porter to the king's house, to be delivered into the charge of the officer of the tower in command. A similar escort is called for by the yeoman porter when the gates are opened in the morning, but no ceremony takes place at that time, nor does the guard turn out. Medievalism is in our very midst, and here, at all events, medieval London still exists. The Tower as a Palace Most of our kings, from the Conqueror to Charles II, used the tower as a palace. Those who feared their subjects sheltered themselves there, but those who were popular preferred the comfort of Westminster and Whitehall. Mr. Clark says that, quote, The strong monarchs employed the tower as a prison, the weak ones as a fortress. End quote. After the Middle Ages had closed, the sovereigns kept out of the tower as much as they could, and seldom visited it unless they were officially obliged, and these visits were almost confined to a lodging there on the day before the coronation. Charles II was the last sovereign to carry out this convention. William I, William II, and Henry I, all three inhabited the tower, but it was not until the reign of Stephen that its value as a place of refuge was proved. With the Empress Matilda at Winchester and King Stephen at London, the state of public affairs, with sieges and counter-sieges, in which neither party gained any great success, came to a deadlock. Stephen, in 1140, sought safety in the tower in close proximity to his trusty followers, the Londoners, but in the following year he was made a prisoner at Lincoln. The Londoners attended the Synod at Winchester 
and requested the king's release, but without avail. Geoffrey de Mandeville, constable of the Tower of London, whose faithless conduct in these civil wars has been fully set out by Mr. Horace Round, had been made Earl of Essex by Stephen, but when the Empress came to London, he had no compunction in transferring his allegiance to her, for which conduct she loaded him with honours. He was, however, short-sighted in his action, for Matilda treated the Londoners with such contumely that they rose against her and drove her from the city. They also attacked Mandeville in the tower, but this Mr. Facing both ways, finding that the Empress Matilda had fled, and the Queen Matilda, Stephen's wife, taken her place in London, saw no objection to supporting the latter's cause. Stephen was soon afterwards released, and he again honoured Geoffrey de Mandeville. No amount of special favour, however, was sufficient to keep this man to his allegiance, and he planned a revolt in favour of the Empress. This came to naught, and the king captured the fortifications erected by the earl at Farringdon and took him prisoner. Mandeville took no more part in public affairs, and ended his life as a marauding freebooter in September 1143. Thus ignominiously came to a conclusion the career of a man who held a foremost place in London. He was not wise in his conduct, because in the word of the Empress's charter to him, he made the Londoners his mortal foes. As Dr. Sharp says of these same Londoners, they, quote, throughout the long period of civil dissension were generally to be found on the winning side, and held, as it were, the balance between the rival powers. End quote. In John's reign, London opened its gates to the forces of the barons, organised under Robert Fitzwalter, Castellan of London, as Marshal of the Army of God and Holy Church. During the period that the barons were at war with John, Prince Louis of France lived in the Tower prior to his renunciation of all right of sovereignty in England and his return to France. Henry III, in 1236, summoned the council to meet him in the Tower, but the barons had so little faith in their king that they refused to assemble there. The king was satisfied to be safe in the Tower in 1263, while Simon de Montfort, with the barons, pitched tents at Isleworth. The Londoners were distinctly disloyal, and Stowe tells us that, quote, When the Queen would have gone by water unto Windsor, the Londoners, getting them to the bridge in great numbers, under the which she must pass, cried out on her, using many vile reproachful words, threw dirt and stones at her, that she was constrained to return again to the tower. End quote. In Edward I's reign, Raymond Lully, the alchemist, is said to have taken up his residence in the tower at the king's desire, and to have performed in the royal presence the experiment of transmuting some crystal into a mass of diamond or adamant, of which the king is said to have made little pillars for the tabernacle of God. The biographers of Lully, however, express the belief that he never visited England. Edward II seldom visited the tower, except when he sought shelter from his subjects. His queen gave birth there to her eldest daughter, who was known as Jane of the Tower. His second son, John of Eltham, who was born on August 15, 1316, was appointed Warden of the City of London and Warden of the Tower when he was ten years of age. In 1328, a year after his father's death, John of Eltham was created Earl of Cornwall, and in 1336 he himself died. 
The first years of Edward III's reign were spent in the tower, and the king was forced to remain there till he had put down Mortimer and was able to assume the government himself. He made many additions to the buildings, and Clark supposes that he built the Beauchamp and Salt Towers, and perhaps the Bowyer. The king took great pride in the tower, which he made his chief arsenal, and strongly fortified and garrisoned. Hence, his anger in 1340, when he unexpectedly returned to England and found the tower unguarded. His first act was to imprison the constable and other officers for their negligence. The mayor, the clerk of the exchequer, and many others whose duty it was to raise or receive the subsidies which had been granted were thrown into prison. The tower stands out very prominently in the history of the reign of Richard II. We have already seen in the second chapter what crimes were perpetrated there during the Peasants' Revolt in 1381. In 1390, a grand international tournament was arranged when many foreigners of distinction became the guests of the king in the tower. On the 29th of September 1399, in the council room of the White Tower, occurred that sad scene when Richard, in his kingly robes, scepter in hand and crown upon his head, abdicated his throne, saying, quote, I have been King of England, Duke of Aquitaine, and Lord of Ireland about twenty-one years, which scenery, royalty, scepter, crown, and heritage I clearly resign here to my cousin, Henry of Lancaster. And I desire him here in this open presence in entering the same possession to take the scepter. End quote. So closed the career of a king whose son rose with so much promise, only to set in misfortune and leave behind him the recollection of one of the greatest disappointments of history. Henry VI had a sorry time in the tower, but the incidents connected with the constant vicissitudes, which at one time raised the fortunes of the Yorkists and at another those of the Lancastrians, caused so many changes in the occupation of the tower that it is impossible to note here all that took place. When the Yorkist earls of Salisbury, Warwick, and March returned to England in 1460, they marched on London, but the Common Council determined to oppose their entrance into the city. This arrangement was agreed on with Lord Scales and Hungerford, who, with others, held the tower for King Henry. The citizens, however, after a time began to doubt the wisdom of supporting the imbecile Henry, so on July 2nd they admitted the Yorkist earls into the city. While London was thus on the side of the Yorkists, the tower remained true to the king, but every effort was made to obtain the surrender of the fortress. The tower was invested by land and water, and the garrison was starved out and had to surrender. In the following year, the Earl of March became king as Edward IV, and made himself agreeable to his subjects. When in 1464 he married Elizabeth Woodville, the citizens showed their respect for the Queen by riding out to meet her and escorting her to the tower, besides presenting her with a gift of 1,000 marks. A change occurred in 1470, when Edward had to fly and Henry was restored. Henry VI, no longer a prisoner, was removed from his cell to the palace, but soon afterwards he was taken to the Bishop of London's palace at St Paul's. In the following year, however, Edward recovered the throne and was let into London by the recorder and some aldermen. In May 1471, when Edward IV was out of the city, 
Thomas, the natural son of William Neville, First Lord Falkenberg, Earl of Kent, known as the Bastard Falconbridge, headed a rising of Kentish men and marched on London in support of Henry VI. He was supported by a fleet in the river. With the help of a company of shipmen and other followers, he made an attempt to force Bishopsgate, Aldgate, and the bridge. Some of his followers got through Aldgate, but the portcullis being let down, those who had entered were cut off from the main body and lost their lives. A few days after this unsuccessful assault, May the 21st, King Henry was murdered in the tower. The name of Richard III was intimately associated with the council chamber, and the consideration of the particulars of his violent methods help us to obtain a vivid picture of the dark passages filled with armed men ready to do the wicked will of their employer. The most memorable of these scenes occurred when the council was sitting. Suddenly there is a cry of treason from the adjoining apartment. Gloucester rushes to the door and is met by a party of soldiers who, at his command, arrest all the council but the Duke of Buckingham. The astonished nobles have scarcely time to recover from their surprise before they see, from the windows of their prison, Lord Hastings beheaded on Tower Green. In the following reign, when Henry VII fixed the day for the coronation of his queen, November 25, 1487, she came by water from Greenwich two days before, attended by the mayor, sheriffs, and aldermen, and many citizens, chosen some from each craft, wearing their liveries in barges, quote, freshly furnished with banners and streamers of silk, end quote. One of the barges, called the Bachelors, contained, quote, many gentlemanly pageants, well and curiously devised, to do Her Highness sport and pleasure, end quote. The king received the queen at the tower. Much might be said of the doings of Henry VIII, Edward VI, Queens Mary and Elizabeth, James I, and Charles I. But there is no room in this book for a complete history of the Tower, and we must therefore hurry on in order to give some notice of a few of the celebrated prisoners. There could never have been much accommodation in the White Tower, so called on account of the whitewashing it received in the reign of Henry III, as a suitable residence for the sovereign, so that as the centuries passed, and more comfort was expected by all classes, kings and queens would naturally expect to be better cared for. A palace was therefore built in the inner ward, and the Lanthorn Tower formed a part of this palace, containing as it did the king's bedchamber and his private closet. These buildings appear to have fallen into decay in the reign of Elizabeth, by whom or by James the Great Hall was removed. Some were destroyed by Cromwell, and others by James II, to make room for a new ordnance office, and the remains of the Lanthorn Tower were taken down late in the 18th century. 1788. That royalty was not always well housed may be seen by a recorded case in the reign of Edward II. Johann de Cromwell, constable of the Tower, gave great offence to the citizens by reason of certain of his high-handed actions, and in the end he was dismissed from his office, but the reason given for his dismissal was not on account of the offensive acts complained of, but for the neglect of duties, by which the rooms were allowed to remain out of repair, and because the rain came in upon the Queen's bed. Some particulars are given in the Liber Albus respecting the legal position of the tower. When the exchequer was closed, the mayor was to be presented at the tower, 
and the pleas of the city with the crown were sometimes held there. And when this was the case, the city barons were to place their own janitors outside the tower gate, and the king's janitor was to be on the inside. They further had an ostiarius outside the door of the hall when the pleas were held, to introduce the barons, and the king had an ostiarius inside. Mr. Clark supposes the hall to have been the building afterwards superseded by the Office of Ordnance, and the entrance to which is thought to have been by the modernized doorway close east of the Wakefield Tower. St. John's Chapel is one of the most interesting ecclesiastical buildings in England. It is a singularly fine example of early Norman architecture, and many historical events are associated with it. The Triforium was used as a gallery, and it is supposed that the queens and their maids of honour sat there at the services. It is traditionally reported that in front of the old altar, now replaced by a new one, Brackenbury, when kneeling at prayer, was tempted by the emissaries of Richard of Gloucester to make away with the young princes, a suggestion which he indignantly repudiated. Here also Mary I was betrothed to Philip of Spain. One important appanage of the palace was the Menagerie of Wild Beasts, which was placed near the entrance at a very early date. Henry I kept lions and leopards, and Henry III added to the collection. Stowe tells us that in the year 1235, Frederick the Emperor sent to Henry III three leopards in token of his regal shield of arms wherein those leopards were pictured, since the which time those lions and others have been kept in a part of this bulwark now called the Lion Tower, and their keepers there lodged. In 1255, the sheriffs built a house for the king's elephant, which was brought from France and was the first seen in England. Edward II, in the twelfth year of his reign, quote, commanded the sheriffs of London to pay to the keeper of the king's leopard sixpence the day for the sustenance of the leopard and three halfpence a day for diet of the said keeper. End quote. Edward III appears to have taken much pride in his menagerie, and in 1364 a proclamation was issued by the king for the safekeeping of a beast called an Ur, which was in danger from certain persons who threatened to do grievous harm to the keepers, quote, and atrociously to kill the said beast, end quote. Mr. Riley, who prints the proclamation in his memorials, supposes the animal to be either the Urus, Aurochs, or Bison, from the east of Europe, or the Irwi from Morocco. The proclamation addressed to the mayor and sheriff runs thus, quote, We, wishing to preserve the said keepers and the beast from injury and grievance, do command you that in the city aforesaid and the suburbs thereof, where you shall deem most expedient, you do cause public proclamation to be made, and it on our behalf strictly to be forbidden that any person, native or stranger, of whatsoever condition he may be, on pain of forfeiting unto us as much as he may forfeit, shall have the audacity to do any damage, violence, misprison, or grievance unto the said keepers or to the beast, which we have so taken under our protection and especial defence, or to any of them, or shall presume to intermeddle for getting a sight of the said beast against the will of them, the keepers thereof, and if you shall know any one to attempt the contrary hereof, 
then you are so to punish them that the same punishment may deter all others from attempting the like, and to answer unto us as to such forfeiture in manner as is befitting. End quote. In later times, the collection of wild beasts must have been considerable, and Stowe relates in his Chronicle how trials of strength between the animals were exhibited before the royal family. On the 23rd of June, 1609, quote, The king, queen, and prince, the Lady Elizabeth and the Duke of York, with diverse great lords and many others, came to the tower to see a trial of the lion's single valour against a great fierce bear, which had killed a child that was negligently left in the bear house. This fierce bear was brought into the open yard behind the lion's den, which was the place for fight. End quote. Two mastiffs let into the yard past the bear and attacked the lion. Then a stallion and six dogs were introduced. The dogs worried the horse till three stout bear wards drove them off, the bear and lion looking on. The latter was allowed to escape to his den, and other lions were brought out, but none would attack the bear. On the 5th of July, this same bear was baited to death. On the 10th of April, 1610, Prince Henry and attendant nobles went privately to the tower to see a fight between the great lion and four dogs. The dogs got the better of the lion, and another lion and lioness were brought to see if they would help the first lion, but they would not, and all three were glad to escape to their dens. The few animals that remained in the menagerie in the 19th century were removed to the zoological gardens in Regent's Park in 1834. The Tower as a Prison it is as a state prison that the tower is most associated in our memories. Here have been confined some of the noblest of English men and women, but besides these there were others who have richly deserved their fate. Some of the prisoners lodged here only for a time, but the majority found it to be merely the threshold of death. The first prisoner was Ralph Flambard, Bishop of Durham, the hated minister of William Rufus. On that king's death, Henry I, with the advice of his council, shut the bishop up in one of the topmost chambers of the White Tower. Flambard was not very carefully guarded, and he used the liberal allowance put aside for him in providing drink for his keepers. He received a rope in a flagon from friends outside, and while his jailers were drunk, he managed to escape by its means on the night of the 4th of February, 1101. Although the rope proved too short and he was injured by his fall, he reached Normandy safely. Five years after this, the Count of Mortain, who was taken prisoner by Henry I, was imprisoned in the tower, as we learn from the testimony of Aidmer. The Jews, in large numbers, were thrown into the tower in 1282. The Welsh next furnished victims, and then the Scots. The Battle of Dunbar in 1296 caused many prisoners, including the king, John Balliol, and a host of his nobility, to fall into the hands of Edward I. In 1303, the king's treasury was robbed while Edward I was in Scotland, and suspicion fell upon the abbot and monks of Westminster. The sacristan, sub-prior, and others were imprisoned in the tower. The whole affair is very difficult to understand, but it was fully investigated by order of the king, and there can be no doubt that some members of the monastery were deeply implicated. It created a great scandal, and was one of the most remarkable crimes ever committed. 
Mr. L. O. Pike gives a full account of the incidents in his History of Crime in England, 1873, and says, quote, It is quite evident that an enterprise which required more than four months for its accomplishment could not have been successful had there been no collusion within the Abbey Gates. The findings of the various juries point to a deep-laid conspiracy between some persons in the Abbey and others in the neighbouring palace. End quote. Wallace, in 1305, found a prison here before he was drawn through Cheapside and executed in Smithfield. The Order of the Knights Templar was abolished in 1313, and all the members south of the Trent were imprisoned in the tower, where the master died. The earliest drawing of the tower which has come down to us contains a curious picture of the building, and a representation of the incidents of the captivity of Charles, Duke of Orléans, who was taken prisoner at the Battle of Agincourt. This interesting picture is in one of the manuscripts in the British Museum. As was the custom of the early artists, a succession of incidents in the life of the prisoner are depicted in the same drawing. The Duke is seen at a turret window, then writing at a desk in a large chamber. At the foot of the White Tower, he is embracing the messenger who brings him his ransom. He is then seen mounting his horse, and he and a friendly messenger ride away from the tower. Lastly, we see him in a barge with lusty rowers pulling down the stream for the boat which is to carry him home to France. There were two places of execution, that on Tower Hill, under the authority of the governors of the city, and the other on Tower Green, within the tower walls. Edward IV set up a scaffold and gallows upon Tower Hill, but the City of London insisted upon their ancient right of dealing with offenders within their own precincts, so the king's scaffold and gallows were taken down with many apologies, and the sheriffs maintained their ancient privileges of headings and hangings beyond the tower walls. The city boundary existed within the tower, and in James I's reign, a question arose as to whether or no Sir Thomas Overbury's murder was committed within the city. As his apartment was situated on the west of the boundary, the criminals came under the jurisdiction of the city. The place of execution on Tower Green is a spot of hallowed memories. It was marked off and railed in by command of Queen Victoria. Lord Hastings was probably beheaded there in 1483, and among the distinguished names of those who suffered on this spot are Anne Boleyn in 1536, Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury, daughter of the Duke of Clarence and mother of Cardinal Pole in 1541, Catherine Howard and Jane, Viscountess Rochefort, sister-in-law of Anne Boleyn in 1542, Lady Jane Grey in 1554, and Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex in 1601. The chapel of St. Peter's Ad Vincula was probably first built by Henry II, although the earliest mention of it occurs in the year 1210. It was burned in 1512 and rebuilt as we see it now about 1532. The great interest of this chapel centres around the names of the great who, having suffered in life, now rest in this temple of the dead. A tablet on the wall contains a list of the most distinguished of these names. The Beauchamp Tower is one of the most interesting of the buildings, as it is full of inscriptions on the walls cut by the prisoners. Close by is the yeoman jailer's lodging, 
where probably Lady Jane Grey stood to see her husband taken from Beauchamp Tower to execution on Tower Hill. Sir Walter Raleigh was three times a prisoner in the Tower, and he was very differently treated each time. In Elizabeth's reign, he could converse with those outside from the walk near the Bloody Tower, which is named after him. In James's reign, he had, for a fellow prisoner, Henry, ninth Earl of Northumberland, known as the Wizard Earl. The great philosopher Thomas Harriet was allowed to visit the two prisoners, and he travelled on the Thames between the Tower and Sion House, bringing from the latter place books out of the Earl's library for the solace of Northumberland and Raleigh. With Traitor's Gate we end this sad eventful history. Samuel Rogers wrote in his poem of Human Life, quote, On through that gate misnamed, through which before, went Sidney, Russell, Raleigh, Cranmer, Moore. End quote. These are great names, but there are others. The Duke of Buckingham in 1521 was taken to Westminster in a barge furnished with a carpet and cushions. After his trial and condemnation for the crime of being too nearly related to the throne, he refused the seat of honour on his return to prison, crying, quote, When I came to Westminster, I was Lord High Constable and Duke of Buckingham, but now poor Edward Bohun. End quote. The Princess Elizabeth, in her sister Mary's reign, refused at first to land at Traitor's Gate, but agreed at last, using these words, quote, Here landeth as true a subject, being a prisoner, as ever landed at these stairs, and before thee, O God, I speak it, having none other friend but thee. End quote. What misery and what cruelty a full record of the sufferings of the prisoners in the tower would unfold to our view. Some of the prisoners reaped the natural consequences of their actions, for they were on the losing side. But others were most unnaturally treated, and among these were noble women whose only fault was that they were related to persons obnoxious to those in power. In later times, imprisonment became somewhat of a farce. Great nobles, unpopular statesmen, and others who were in disgrace were sent to the tower. It still sounded a serious punishment, but the practice gradually fell into disfavour, because people would no longer allow of the beheading of unpopular statesmen. End of chapter 5. End of section 8. Section 9 of the Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley-Jones The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley Chapter 6 Manners, Part 1 Our notices of the sports of medieval London must commence with a reference to the curious essay of the monk Fitzstephen, who was the first to describe the chief features of London history. Quote, Moreover, to begin with the sports of the boys, for we have all been boys, annually on the day which is called Shrovetide, the boys of the respective schools bring each a fighting cock to their master, and the whole of that forenoon is spent by the boys in seeing their cocks fight in the schoolroom. After dinner, all the young men of the city go out into the fields to play at the well-known game of football. 
the scholars, belonging to the several schools, have each their ball, and the city tradesmen, according to their respective crafts, have theirs. The more aged men, the fathers of the players and the wealthy citizens, come on horseback to see the contests of the young men, with whom, after their manner, they participate, their natural heat seeming to be aroused by the sight of so much agility, and by their participation in the amusements of unrestrained youth. Every Sunday in Lent, after a dinner, a company of young men enter the fields mounted on warlike horses, on courses always foremost in the race, of which each steeds well trained to gallop in a ring. The lay sons of the citizens rush out of the gates in crowds equipped with lances and shields, the younger sort with pikes from which the iron head has been taken off, and there they get up sham fights and exercise themselves in military combat. When the king happens to be near the city, most of the courtiers attend, and the young men who form the households of the earls and barons, and have not yet attained the honour of knighthood, resort thither for the purpose of trying their skill. End quote. Footnote. Proclamation was made against playing at football in the fields near the city as early as 1314, during the mayoralty of Nicholas de Fardon. End of footnote. Then, Fitzstephen tells of the sports on the river, but these remarks have already been referred to in the fourth chapter. The description of the sports of summer and winter are then continued. We find a curious account of the Londoner's delight both in sliding and skating, and his contempt for the dangers of the sports. Quote, During the holidays in summer, the young men exercise themselves in the sports of leaping, archery, wrestling, stone-throwing, slinging javelins beyond the mark, and also fighting with bucklers. Cytheria leads the dances of the maidens, who merrily trip along the ground beneath the uprisen moon. Also, on every holiday in winter, before dinner, foaming boars and huge tusked hogs intended for bacon fight for their lives, or fat bulls or immense boars are baited with dogs. When that great marsh which washes the walls of the city on the north side is frozen over, the young men go out in crowds to divert themselves upon the ice, some having increased their velocity by a run, placing their feet apart and turning their bodies sideways, slide a great way. Others make a seat of large pieces of ice like millstones, and a great number of them running before and holding each other by the hand, draw one of their companions who is seated on the ice. If at any time they slip in moving so swiftly, all fall down headlong together. Others are more expert in their sports upon the ice, for fitting to and binding under their feet the shin-bones of some animal, and taking in their hands poles shod with iron, which at times they strike against the ice, they are carried along with as great rapidity as a bird flying, or a bolt discharged from a crossbow. Sometimes, two of the skaters having placed themselves a great distance apart, by mutual agreement, come together from opposite sides. They meet, raise their poles, and strike each other. Either one or both of them fall, not without some bodily hurt. Even after their fall, they are carried along to a great distance from each other by the velocity of the motion. 
and whatever part of their heads comes in contact with the ice is laid bare to the very skull. Very frequently, the leg or arm of the falling one, if he chance to light upon either of them, is broken. But youth is an age eager for glory and desirous of victory, and so young men engage in counterfeit battles that they may conduct themselves more valiantly in real ones. Most of the citizens amuse themselves in sporting with martins, hawks, and other birds of a like kind, and also with dogs that hunt in the wood. End quote. It was one thing to go out into the fields to play these games, but when there was a large population within the walls, it must have been very inconvenient to the inhabitants to find the streets occupied by footballers. The practice seems to have been allowed until it became a public nuisance. In the year 1406, proclamation was issued forbidding hocking in streets of London. Quote, Let proclamation be made that no person of this city, or within the suburbs thereof, of whatsoever estate or condition such person may be, whether man or woman, shall, in any street or lane thereof, take hold of or constrain any person, of whatsoever state or condition he may be, within house or without, for hocking on the Monday or Tuesday next, called hock days, on pain of imprisonment, and of making fine at the discretion of the mayor and alderman. End quote. Hock Monday and Tuesday were the Monday and Tuesday following the second Sunday after Easter Day, and Spellman describes the sport of hocking as consisting, quote, in the men and women binding each other, and especially the women the men, end quote. Hone writes in his Everyday Book, quote, Tuesday was the principal day, Hock Monday was for the men, and Hock Tuesday for the women. On both days, the men and women alternately, with great merriment, intercepted the public road with ropes and pulled passengers to them, from whom they extracted money to be laid out for pious uses. Monday, probably having been originally kept as only the vigil or introduction to the festival of Hock Day. End quote. The proclamation of 1406 does not seem to have been effectual and therefore, three years afterwards, another proclamation was issued against hocking, football, and cock-threshing. The prohibition of hocking is expressed in the same terms as in the proclamation of 1406, and to this is added the following, quote, And that no person shall levy money, or cause it to be levied, for the games called football and cock-threshing, because of marriages that have recently taken place in the said city, or the suburbs thereof, on pain of imprisonment, and of making fine at the discretion of the mayor and alderman. End quote. Cock-throwing and football were especially in season at Shrovetide, and at that time it was difficult for the authorities to hold the Londoners in hand, and prevent them from making the streets their playground. The cases of punishment already referred to are connected with prohibitions, but in 1389, a curious case of a fine inflicted for stopping a procession on the festival of Corpus Christi is recorded. A citizen was brought before the mayor and the sheriffs, recorder, and alderman to answer for having prevented a procession from passing through his house, which the parishioners believed to be their right. 
It is one thing for the inhabitants of a small town like Helston in Cornwall to pass through houses without hindrance on furry day, and quite another for the same right to be claimed in London, even in the Middle Ages. The case is so remarkable that it seems well to quote the whole statement. Quote, because that, by the reputable men of the parish of St. Nicholas Acon, Nicholas Twyford, knight, mayor of the city of London, was given to understand that whereas they, time out of mind, had been wont and accustomed to have free ingress and egress with their procession on the befitting unusual days, through the middle of a certain house belonging to John Bass, citizen and draper of London, situate in the parish of St. Mary Abchurch in London, the aforesaid John, together with John Creek, Draper, and others of their coven on Thursday, the Feast of Corpus Christi last past, armed with diverse arms, guarded the house before mentioned by main force, and would not allow the prisoners of the Church of St. Nicholas aforesaid to enter the house with their procession, as they had been wont to do, but grievously threatened them as to life and limb. In breach of the peace of our Lord the King, and to the manifest disturbance of the tranquillity of the city aforesaid. For the said reason, the same John and John were arrested. Afterwards, on the twenty-sixth day of June, in the thirteenth year, etc., they were brought before the said mayor and the sheriffs, recorder and alderman, in the chamber of the guild hall, and were there questioned as to the matter aforesaid, and were asked how they would acquit themselves thereof, whereupon they acknowledged that they were guilty of all the things above imputed to them, and put themselves upon the favour of the court as to the same. And counsel, having been held hereon, according to the usage of the city in like cases, it was adjudged that the said John Bass, as being the principal and the prime mover in the contempt aforesaid, should have imprisonment for one year then next ensuing, to commence from the Friday next after the Feast of St. Botolph, 17th of June namely, Friday the 18th of June, then last past, and that on his leaving prison he should pay to the Chamberlain of the Guildhall two hundred marks to the use of the commonalty for the contempt aforesaid, unless he should meet with increased favour in the meantime, and that the aforesaid John Creek, for the contempt so by him committed, should have imprisonment for half a year after the said Friday next ensuing, and that on his leaving prison he should pay to the aforesaid Chamberlain one hundred marks to the use of the commonalty, unless he should meet with increased favour in the meantime. End quote. These were truly exemplary damages, and we find that the imprisonment was remitted on the same day, and the fines were respectively reduced to fifteen pounds and one hundred shillings. Besides sports in the streets, there was a constant succession of pageants, processions, and tournaments in the Middle Ages, which made the streets gay and brought out most of the inhabitants to see the sights. The royal procession arranged in connection with coronations were of great antiquity, but one of the earliest to be described is that of Henry III in 1236, which was chronicled by Matthew Paris. After the marriage at Canterbury of the king with Eleanor of Provence, the royal personages came to London, and were met by the mayor, aldermen and principal citizens to the number of three hundred and sixty, sumptuously apparelled in silken robes embroidered, riding upon stately horses. A very interesting point is mentioned by Matthew Paris, 
viz., that each man carried a gold or silver cup in his hand, in token of the privilege claimed by the city of the mayor being chief butler of the kingdom at the coronation. Something further respecting this claim will be found in the eighth chapter of this book. On this occasion, the streets of the city were adorned with rich silks, pageants, and a variety of pompous shows, and the citizens attending the king and queen to Westminster had the honour of officiating at the queen's coronation. At night, the city was illuminated with an infinite number of lamps, cressets, etc. After the death of Henry III, 1272, the country had to wait for their new king, who was then in the Holy Land. Edward I came to London on the 2nd of August, 1274, where he was received with the wildest expressions of joy. The streets were hung with rich cloths of silk, arras, and tapestry. The aldermen and principal men of the city threw out of their windows handfuls of gold and silver, to signify their gladness at the king's return, and the conduits ran with wine, both white and red. The coronation took place on the 19th of August. The happy married life of Edward I and Eleanor of Castile came to an end in 1290, and in connection with her death was arranged the most striking and most beautiful expression of a husband's and a nation's love in our history. The Queen died in Harby, Lincolnshire, and the funeral procession came slowly to London and Westminster. Beautiful crosses were afterwards placed on the various spots where each night the body stopped. Two of these stopping places were in London, at Cheapside, beneath the shadow of Old St Paul's, and at Charing Cross, on the way to Westminster, where the Queen's beautiful tomb remains as one of the chief glories of our wonderful Abbey Church. Cheapside Cross was re-edified in 1441, and afterwards newly gilt and newly burnished. Defaced and repaired at different times, little was left of the original when the cross was cleared away in 1647, at the same time as Charing Cross. Only three of the original Eleanor Crosses remain, two in Northamptonshire, one at Geddington and the other at Northampton, and the third at Waltham Cross. Every Englishman should be proud of these glorious records of a past age, which not only tell of the devoted love of two sovereigns, of whom we all must be proud, but also because they prove the high state of English art at this time. Until late years, when certain documents were discovered containing the names of the artists, the historians of art attempted to believe that the designs were too good for Englishmen and must have been made by foreigners. In order to establish peace between England and France, King Edward married Margaret of France, sister of the French king, at Canterbury in 1299, and in the following year she first came to London. The citizens, to the number of 600, rode in one livery of red and white, with the cognizance of their mistress embroidered upon their sleeves, and received her four miles without the city, and so conveyed her to Westminster. Edward I was buried at Westminster on October 27, 1307, and his son, on coming to the throne, recalled Piers Gaveston from banishment. He made him regent of the kingdom when he crossed to France to be married to Isabella, the daughter of Philip IV. In February 1307-1308, Edward II returned to England with his bride, 
and was joyfully received by the citizens. On the 24th, they were crowned at Westminster. The king, we are told by Stowe, offered on the altar first a pound of gold made like a king holding a ring in his hand, and then a mark of gold, eight ounces, made like a pilgrim putting forth his hand to receive the ring. The crush was very great at his coronation, and in it Sir John Blackwell was killed. In November 1312, Queen Isabel announced to the mayor her safe delivery of a son in the following letter. Quote, Isabel, by the grace of God, Queen of England, Lady of Ireland, and Duchess of Aquitaine, to our well-beloved, the Mayor and Alderman of the Commonalty of London, greeting. For as much as we believe that you would willingly hear good tidings of us, we do make known unto you that our Lord of His grace has delivered us of a son. End quote. Afterwards, Edward III. The Mayor and his Alderman and Commonalty, on hearing the news, quote, Assembled in the Guildhall at time of Vespers, and carolled, and showed great joy thereat, and so passed through the city with great glare of torches, and with trumpets and other minstrelsies. And on the Tuesday next, early in the morning, cry was made throughout all the city to the effect that there was to be no work, labour, or business in shop on that day, but that everyone was to apparel himself in the most becoming manner that he could, and come to the Guildhall at the hour of prime, ready to go with the mayor, together with the other good folks, to St. Paul's, there to make praise and offering to the honour of God, who had shown them such favour on earth, and to show respect for this child that had been born. End quote. At the beginning of the next week, all went richly costumed to Westminster, riding on horseback, and there made offering. After dinner in the Guildhall, quote, they went in carols throughout the city all the rest of the day and great part of the night. End quote. The conduit of cheap ran with nothing but wine, and a pavilion extended in the middle of the street near Broken Cross, at the north door of St. Paul's, in which was set a ton of wine for all passers by to drink of. In the following February, the Fishmongers' Company caused a boat to be fitted out in the guise of a great ship to be drawn to Westminster and presented to the Queen. The fishmongers, very richly costumed, escorted the Queen through the city on the same day on her way to Canterbury on pilgrimage. In 1330 there was an accident during the progress of a great tournament in Cheapside, which was part of an entertainment offered by the citizens to the young King, Edward III, and Queen at the birth of their first son. The Queen Philippa displayed the same good qualities which, on a later occasion, she showed after the surrender of Calais, and thereby secured a lasting fame as a good woman. Stowe relates the event as follows. Quote, there was a very solemn jousting of all the stout earls, barons, and nobles at London in Cheap, betwixt the great cross and the great conduit nigh Soper Lane, which lasted three days, where the Queen Philippa, with many ladies, fell from a stage, notwithstanding they were not hurt at all, wherefore the Queen took great care to save the carpenters from punishment, and through her prayer, which she made on her knees, she pacified the King and Council, whereby she purchased great love of the people. End quote. 
This accident was the cause of Edward III ordering the construction in stone of a shed, Seldam, on the north side of Bow Church, so that the royal party might in future be able to view the joustings and other shows with safety. Edward III was for some years the most popular of our monarchs, for he was constantly conquering his enemies, and his people were proud of him. In 1343 a great triumph was organised in his honour, which is described in Sir William Segar's Honour Military and Civil. The king commanded that the tournament should be proclaimed in France, Hainaut, Flanders, Brabant, and other places. Quote, giving passport and secure abode to all noble strangers that would resort into England. End quote. The triumph took place in London and continued for fifteen days. Dr. Jessup gives us a vivid picture of what occurred four years afterwards. Quote, when King Edward III entered London in triumph on the 14th of October 1347, he was the foremost man in Europe, and England had reached a height of power and glory such as she had never attained before. At the Battle of Cressy, France had received a crushing blow, and by the loss of Calais, after an eleven-month siege, she had been reduced well-nigh to the lowest point of humiliation. David II, King of Scotland, was now lying a prisoner in the Tower of London. Louis of Bavaria had just been killed by a fall from his horse, the imperial throne was vacant, and the electors in eager haste proclaimed that they had chosen the King of England to succeed. To their discomfiture, the King of England declined the proffered crown. He had other views. Intoxicated by the splendour of their sovereign and his martial renown, and the success which seemed to attend him wherever he showed himself, the English people had gone mad with exultation. End quote. Two years later, in 1349, the fearful pestilence, known of late years as the Black Death, was destroying half the population of the country. One of the most interesting of London processions was that which took place when the chivalrous Black Prince brought his prisoners to England in 1357. Stowe's account of the historic scene is so vivid that it needs must be transferred to these pages without paraphrase. Quote, Edward, Prince of Wales, returning into England with John, the French King, Philip, his son, and many other prisoners, arrived at Plymouth on the 5th of May, and the 4 and 20th of May entered London with them, where he was received with great honour of the citizens, and so conveyed to the King's Palace at Westminster, where the King, sitting in his estate in Westminster Hall, received them, and after conveyed the French King to a lodging, where he lay a season, and after the said French King was lodged in the Savoy, which was then a pleasant place, belonging to the Duke of Lancaster. In the winter following were great and royal jousts holden in Smithfield at London, where many knightly sights of arms were done to the great honour of the king and realm, at the which were present the kings of England, France, and Scotland, with many noble estates of all those kingdoms, whereof the more part of the strangers were prisoners. End quote. The king of France remained a prisoner for three years, but in 1360 King Edward marched upon Paris, and peace was made to the joy of the French, although the English gained a third of that kingdom by the Peace of Bretigny. When the peace was confirmed, 
Edward III came to England, quote, and so straight to the tower to see the French king, where he appointed his ransom to be three millions of florences, and so delivered him of all imprisonment, and brought him with great honour to the sea, who then sailed over to France. End quote. On the 8th of June, 1376, that flower of chivalry, the Black Prince, died in the Archbishop's Palace at Canterbury. His young son, Richard, was then created by the King, Earl of Chester, Duke of Cornwall, and Prince of Wales. At Christmas, the Londoners formed a torchlight procession from the city to Kennington in honour of the Prince. Quote, On the Sunday before Candlemas, in the night, 130 citizens, disguised and well-horsed, in a mummery with sounds of trumpets, large trumpets, horns, shalms, and other minstrels, and innumerable torchlights of wax, rode from Newgate through Cheap, over the bridge, through Southwark, and so to Kennington, besides Lambeth, where the young prince remained with his mother. In the first rank did ride forty-eight, in the likeness and habit of esquires, two and two together, clothed in red coats, and gowns of say or sandal, with comely visors on their faces. After them came riding forty-eight knights in the same livery of colour and stuff. Then followed one richly arrayed like an emperor, and after him at some distance, one stately attired like a pope, whom followed twenty-four cardinals, and after them eight or ten with black visors not amiable, as if they had been legates from some foreign princes. These maskers, after they had entered the manor of Kennington, alighted from their horses and entered the hall on foot, which done, the prince, his mother, and the lords came out of the chamber into the hall, whom the said mummers did salute, showing by a pair of dice on the table their desire to play with the prince, which they so handled that the prince did always win when they cast them. Then the mummers set to the prince three jewels one after another, which were a bowl of gold, a cup of gold, and a ring of gold, which the prince won at three casts. Then they set to the prince's mother, the duke, John of Gaunt, the earls, and other lords, to every one a ring of gold, which they did also win. After which they were feasted, and the music sounded. The prince and the lords danced on the one part with the mummers, who did also dance, which jollity being needed, they were again made to drink, and then departed in order as they came. End quote. On the 21st of June following, 1377, Edward III, deserted by his mistress, Alice Perez, and his courtiers, and attended by a solitary priest, died at Sheen, now Richmond. Before the breath was out of his body, the citizens waited upon the young Prince Richard and offered their allegiance, requesting him to come to London. In Walsingham's Chronicle, there is an account of a pageant in honour of the young king in the following month. On the Feast of St. Swithin, the mayor and citizens assembled near the tower when King Richard, clad in white garments, came forth with a great multitude in his suite, also dressed in white. The streets were hung with cloth of gold and silver and silken stuff, and the conduits ran wine for three hours. At the upper end of Cheapside was erected a castle with four towers, 
In the towers were placed four beautiful virgins, of stature and age like to the king, apparelled in white. These damsels, on the king's approach, blew in his face leaves of gold, and threw on him and his horse counterfeit golden florins. When he was come before the castle, they took cups of gold, and filling them with wine at the spouts of the castle, presented the same to the king and his nobles. On top of the castle, betwixt the towers, stood a golden angel, holding a crown in his hands, and so contrived that when the king came, he bowed down and offered him the crown. There was infinite variety in these pageants, and they were very frequent during the Middle Ages and long after, but the too full description of them is likely to become monotonous. It will therefore be sufficient to refer to some of the other rejoicings in a more succinct manner. On Friday after the Epiphany, 1382, the mayor and aldermen and commons rode to meet the new queen, Anne of Bohemia, and conducted her through the city. All the crafts were charged to wear nothing but red and black. End of chapter 6, part 1. End of section 9. Section 10 of the Story of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Lawley Jones. The Story of London by Henry B. Wheatley. Chapter 6 Manners, Part 2. In 1392, Richard II wanted to borrow £1,000 from the Londoners. However, they not only refused, but killed a certain Lombard who would have lent the sum. The king was very angry and deposed the mayor, imprisoning him in Windsor Castle, and the sheriffs and various prominent citizens in other prisons. Finding that they were in a bad case, the citizens repented and offered the king ten thousand pounds. Richard, learning that the Londoners were in heaviness and dismayed, said to his men, as Stowe tells us, quote, I will go to London and comfort the citizens, and will not that they any longer despair of my favour. On leaving Sheen, he was met on Wandsworth Common by four hundred of the citizens on horseback, clad in one livery, who, in the most humble manner, craving pardon for their past offences, besought him by their recorder to take his way to his palace at Westminster through the city of London. The request having been granted, the king pursued his journey to Southwark, where, at St. George's Church, he was met by a procession of the Bishop of London and all the religions of every degree, and above five hundred boys in surplices. At London Bridge, a white steed and milk-white palfrey, both saddled, bridled, and caparisoned in cloth of gold, were presented to the king and queen. The citizens received them standing in their liveries on each side of the street, crying, King Richard, King Richard. Handsome presents were made to the king and queen, who proceeded to St. Paul's. After the offerings had been made there, the mayor accompanied the king to Westminster. On the following day, the citizens again went to the palace with presents, and received a new confirmation of their liberties. They had, however, to present a golden tablet of the story of Edward the Confessor for the shrine of that royal saint, 
and were further mulcted in a heavy tax. Seven years after this, the principal actors were changed, and Henry, Duke of Lancaster, approached London with Richard as a captive. He was received in great pomp by the mayor, aldermen, and sheriffs, and all the several companies in their formalities, with the people incessantly crying, Long live the good Duke of Lancaster, our deliverer. On the 13th of October in the same year, 1399, Henry went in great pomp from the tower to Westminster, and there was crowned. In 1413, Henry V passed in procession from the tower through London to Westminster, where he was crowned. But though there was a brave show on this occasion, it was as nothing to what was provided to do honour to the king's return from the glorious field of Agincourt in 1415. The mayor and aldermen, apparelled in orient-grain scarlet, and four hundred commoners in Murray, well-mounted, with rich collars and chains, met the king at Blackheath, and the clergy of London in solemn procession, with rich crosses, sumptuous copes, and many censers, received him at St. Thomas of Waterings, a place on the old Kent Road, which Chaucer's pilgrims passed when they had gone about two miles from the tabard. At the entrance of London Bridge, on the top of the tower, stood a gigantic figure, bearing in his right hand an axe, and in his left the keys of the city hanging to a staff, as if he had been the porter. By his side stood a woman of scarcely less stature, intended for his wife. Around them were a band of trumpets and other wind instruments. The towers were adorned with banners of the royal arms, and in the front of them was inscribed Civitas Regis Justiciae. Henry V made another triumphant entry into London with his bride, Catherine of France, who was crowned at Westminster Abbey on the 14th of February, 1421. On the 31st of August following, the king died in France. On the 14th of November, 1422, the infant Henry VI was carried through the city to the Parliament at Westminster on the lap of his mother, who sat in an open chair. On the 6th of November, 1429, the young king was crowned in Westminster Abbey. The coronation was a very imposing ceremony. At the commencement of the proceedings, the Archbishop of Canterbury made proclamation at the four corners of the scaffold on which the king sat. He spoke as follows. Quote, Ceres, here cometh Harry, King Harry the fifth is son, humility to God and holy church, asking the crown of this realm by right and descent of heritage. If ye hold you well pleased with all, and will be pleased with him, say you now, yea, and hold up your hands. End quote. Then all the people with one voice cried, yea, yea. Henry VI was crowned in France on the 7th of December 1431 by Cardinal Beaufort, his uncle, Bishop of Winchester and on his return to England, he was met at Blackheath by the mayor and citizens on the 21st of February, 1431 to 1432. The mayor and aldermen were dressed in scarlet, and the members of the guilds in white, with the cognizances of their crafts on their sleeves. The figure of a mighty giant with a drawn sword stood at the entrance of the bridge. When the king had passed the first gate and was arrived at the drawbridge, 
he found a goodly tower, hung with silk and cloth of arras, out of which suddenly appeared three ladies, clad in gold and silk, with coronets upon their head, of which the first was Dame Nature, the second Dame Grace, and the third Dame Fortune. On each side of these dames were seven virgins, all clothed in white, those on the right presented the king with the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost, sapience, intelligence, good counsel, strength, cunning, pity, and dread of God, those on the left with the seven gifts of grace, the crown of glory, the scepter of clemency and pity, the sword of might and victory, the mantle of prudence, the shield of faith, the helmet of health, and the girdle of love and perfect peace. On Cornhill was a tabernacle of curious work, in which stood Dame Sapiens, and around her the seven liberal arts, grammar, logic, rhetoric, music, arithmetic, geometry, and astronomy. At the conduit in Cornhill was set a circular pageant, on the summit whereof was a child of wonderful beauty, apparelled like a king, upon whose right hand sat Lady Mercy, on his left Lady Truth, and over them stood Dame Clemency embracing the king's throne. At the conduit in Cheap there were formed several wells, the Well of Mercy, the Well of Grace, and the Well of Pity, and at each a lady standing who administered the water to such as would ask it, and then the water was turned into good wine. A little further west was a tower ornamented with the arms of England and France. By its side stood two green trees, one bearing the genealogy of St. Edward and the other that of St. Louis. On entering St. Paul's churchyard, Henry VI was met by a procession of the dean and canons, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and six bishops who conducted him to the cathedral, where he made his oblations. He then took horse at the west door of St. Paul's, and so rode to Westminster, where he was received by the abbot and taken to St. Edward's shrine. His lords then conveyed him to his palace, and the mayor and citizens returned joyously to London. This was probably the most elaborate and beautiful pageant ever performed in the streets of London. The king married Margaret of Anjou in 1445 and on approaching London, on the way to her coronation, the Queen was met on Blackheath by the Mayor, Aldermen, and Sheriffs, and the principal members of the guilds, attired in brown-blue, with embroidered sleeves and red hoods on their heads, every craft having its cognizance, who brought her with great triumph to Westminster. There were, on this occasion, several pageants of a similar character to those described before. In 1461, after the Battle of Mortimer Cross and the Second Battle of St. Albans, Edward, Earl of March, came to London with his forces and was chosen king in St. John's Field, Clerkenwell, on March 2nd. King Edward's title was set forth in the sermon at St. Paul's Cross by the Bishop of Exeter. After the sermon, the king was conveyed in procession to Westminster Abbey, and after having offered at St. Edward's Shrine, he went to Westminster Hall and, sitting in the royal seat, was greeted with shouts of Long live the King. He then returned to St. Paul's and was lodged in the bishop's palace. 
On the 26th of June, the mayor and aldermen in scarlet and the commons in green brought Edward IV from Lambeth to the tower, and on the 28th inst, he was crowned with great solemnity at Westminster. Quote, and on the morrow, after the king was crowned again in Westminster Abbey in the worship of God and St. Peter, and on the next morrow, he went crowned in Paul's church in London, in the honour of God and St. Paul, and there an angel came down and sensed him, at which time was so great a multitude of people in Paul's as ever was seen in any days. End quote. On Whitsunday, 1465, Queen Elizabeth Grey was crowned at Westminster Abbey, having on the preceding day ridden in a horse litter through the chief streets of London, preceded by the newly created Knights of the Bath, four of whom were men of London, the mayor and three others. Shortly after the murder of Henry VI in the Tower, 1471, Edward was met by the mayor, aldermen and citizens about a mile from the city, between Islington and Shoreditch, and in the highway he knighted the mayor, eleven aldermen, and the recorder. Edward IV died on April 9, 1483, and his young son, Edward V, was brought from Ludlow by the Greys, his relations on the mother's side. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, fearing the action of the Greys, overtook the procession and sent Earl Rivers and Sir Richard Grey prisoners to Pontefract. Edmund Shah the mayor, the sheriffs and the aldermen in scarlet, with five hundred horse of the citizens in violet, met the king and the duke at Hornsey, and, riding from thence, accompanied them into the city, which was entered on the 4th of May. The king was lodged in the bishop's palace, where a great council was held, at which the dukes of Gloucester and Buckingham and other great lords were sworn. Edward V was deposed soon after this, and on the 5th of July, the day before his coronation, Richard rode from the tower through the city with his son, the Prince of Wales, three dukes, nine earls, twenty-two viscounts and barons, eighty knights, esquires and gentlemen not to be numbered, besides the great officers of state. After the Battle of Bosworth, Henry VII was met at Hornsey on the 28th of August, 1485, by the mayor, Sir Thomas Hill, and the aldermen in their scarlet robes, accompanied by a great number of citizens on horseback, in violet-coloured gowns, whence they conducted him to Shoreditch, where he was received by the several companies, and then conducted to St. Paul's, where he offered three standards, one with the image of St. George, another with a red, fiery dragon, and the third with a dun cow. After the singing of the Te Deum, he went to the bishop's palace. Less than a month afterwards, Sir Thomas Hill died of the sweating sickness. The coronation of Henry VII in 1485 was hurried over with less ceremonial than usual and without any procession through the city, but that of the Queen, Elizabeth of York, in 1487, was attended with all the pomp customary on similar occasions. On Friday before St. Catherine's Day, the Queen came from Greenwich by water. The mayor, sheriffs and aldermen with citizens chosen from every craft in their liveries were waiting on the river to receive her and attend her to the tower. On the following day, 
she went through London to Westminster in a litter. The houses were dressed with clothes of tapestry and arras, and in cheap, with rich cloth of gold, velvet, and silk. Along the streets, from the tower to St. Paul's, stood in order all the crafts of London in their liveries, and in various places were placed singing children, some arrayed like angels, to sing sweet songs as the Queen went by. The Battle of Bosworth we have agreed to consider as the period of the break-up of the Middle Ages, but it was many years after this before the shows and amusements of the people exhibited any great change. The Tudors, especially Henry VIII, showed a particular delight in pageantry, and the Stuarts carried on the tradition. In fact, it was in Elizabeth's reign that special attention was given to the arrangement of the Lord Mayor's pageant. George Peel, the dramatist, is the first on the list of the city poets. Although we have already seen that Lydgate was employed to write poetry in honour of King Henry VI, the pageant prepared for the triumphant passage of quote, King James and Queen Anne, his wife, and Henry Frederick, the prince, end quote, from the tower through the city on the 15th of March, 1603 to 1604, were of a magnificent character. Seven beautiful arches of triumph were designed by Stephen Harrison, joiner and architect. These were erected at the expense of the livery companies and the foreign merchants. During the 18th and 19th centuries, the art of pageantry was almost entirely lost. The decoration of our streets on joyful occasions has lately considerably improved, but there is still room for a more artistic treatment. With our knowledge of the past and the possession of artists who are enthusiastic for the revival of a true taste in pageantry, there ought to be no difficulty in the production of pageants that would do honour to our city. It would be well if the authorities would consult with artists for the improvement of the Lord Mayor's show. We have treated of out-of-door amusements, and must now say a few words on one of those enjoyed indoors. Music and poetry were cultivated by certain foreign merchants in England, who established in London, at the close of the 13th and beginning of the 14th century, a society or brotherhood of the Puy, quote, in honour of God, Our Lady St. Mary, and all saints, both male and female, and in honour of our Lord the King, and all the barons of the country, and for the increasing of loyal love, and to the end that the city of London may be renowned for all good things in all places, and to the end that mirthfulness, peace, honesty, joyousness, gaiety, and good love, with infinity, may be maintained. End quote. The majority of the members were foreigners, but Englishmen were not excluded, for we find that John de Chessant was the third prince or president. Statutes and full particulars of proceedings are given in Liber Customarum, and curiously enough, no other evidence of the existence of such a fraternity in England is known. From this document, we learn that the society had received from the city great privileges in respect of the chapel of St. Mary in Guildhall, which was building towards the close of the reign of Edward I. Hence, the donation in its favour for a chaplain by Sir Henry Lewales, 1299, who had been mayor both of London and Bordeaux, 
and in the latter capacity would be likely to feel an additional interest in this musical society of French merchants and their English friends. The regulations are very full and explanatory of the various proceedings at the Festival of the Puy, as the following extracts from Mr. Riley's translation of the Latin original will show. As to the yearly election of a prince, quote, the prince ought to be chosen as being good and loyal and sufficient upon the oath of eleven companions, or of the twelve, to their knowledge, upon their oath, that the Puy may be promoted thereby, and maintained and upheld. And he who shall be chosen for prince may not refuse it upon his oath. And when the old prince and his companions shall leave to make a new prince, at the great feast, the old prince and his companions shall go through the room from one end to the other, singing. And the old prince shall carry the crown of the Puy upon his head, and a gilt cup in his hands, full of wine. And when they shall have gone round, the old prince shall give to drink unto him whom they shall have chosen, and shall give him the crown, and such person shall be prince. End quote. Marriage, Death, and burial of the members. Quote, if there be any one of the companions who marries in the city of London, or who becomes a clerk priest, he ought to let the companions know thereof, and each shall be there according to his oath, if he have not a proper excuse. And the married person ought to give them chaplets, all of one kind, and all the companions ought to go with the bridegroom to the church, and to make offering and to return from the church to the house. And if there be any of the companions of the brotherhood who departs this life and dies, all the companions ought to be there, and to carry the body to church by leave of the kindred, and to make offering. End quote. Common Hutch quote, There shall be a common hutch of the company of the Puy, in which the remembrances and the revised provisions of the company shall be placed in safe keeping. Of which Hutch, in the first place, the new prince, each year after he is chosen, shall have one key, and two companions, by assent of the companions, for such custody chosen, each one key. And that this Hutch shall stand in such safe place as the companions shall ordain within the city of London. End quote. Clerk and Chaplain. Quote, there shall be a clerk, intelligent and residing in London, chosen by the companions to serve the company, and that he be willing and able to be attendant upon and obedient unto the prince and to the twelve companions in all matters that concern the company. That there be a chaplain at all times singing mass for the living and the dead of the company, and a chapel founded in honour of God and Our Lady, so soon as the improved means of the company, by the aid of God and good folks, may thereunto suffice. And if the companions of the Puy who are of sufficient means be pressed by illness, so much as to wish to make their testaments, the prince is to go, with two of the twelve companions with him, to visit the sick persons, and is to remind them of their faith which they have pledged unto the company, and to admonish them to devise somewhat of their property towards supplying the chapel and chaplain aforesaid, and supporting the same. End quote. 
The Grand Feast Quote, Whereas the royal feast of the Puy is maintained and established principally for crowning a royal song, inasmuch as it is by song that it is honoured and enhanced, all the gentle companions of the Puy by right reason are bound to exalt royal songs to the utmost of their power, and especially the one that is crowned by assent of the companions upon the day of the great feast of the Puy. Wherefore it is here provided, as concerning such songs, that each new prince, the day that he shall wear the crown, and shall govern the feast of the Puy, and so soon as he shall have had the blazon of his arms hung in the room where the feast of the Puy shall be held, shall forthwith cause to be set up beneath his blazon the song that was crowned on the day that he was chosen as the new prince, plainly and correctly written, without default. As to the serving up the feast, it is also ordained that all the companions shall be served amply, as well the poorest as the richest, in this form. That is to say, they shall be served with good bread, good ale, and good wine. And then they shall be served with pottage, and with one course of solid meat, and then after that with double roast in a dish and cheese without more. End quote. No ladies present. Quote, Although the becoming pleasance of virtuous ladies is a rightful theme and principal occasion for royal singing, and for composing and furnishing royal songs, nevertheless it is hereby provided that no lady or other woman ought to be at the great sitting of the Puy, for the reason that the members ought hereby to take example, and rightful warning, to honour, cherish, and commend all ladies at all times, in all places, as much in their absence as in their presence. End quote. Costume and Procession quote, The prince ought, at his own cost, to be costumed with coat and surcoat without sleeves, and mantle of one suit, with whatever arms he may please, at his own free will, so that, at the election of a new prince, at the great feast of the Puy, he give his mantle and his crown to the new prince, so soon as he shall be chosen. He who shall be crowned for his song upon that day may ride between the old prince and the new one in the procession on horseback which they shall make throughout the city, after the feast, that they may have knowledge of the one prince and of the other by the suit of the costumes. Forthwith, after they have given the crown to him who shall sing the best, they shall mount their horses and make their procession through the city, and shall then escort their new prince to his house, and there they shall all alight, and shall have a dance there, by way of hearty good-bye, and they shall then take one drink and depart, each to his own house, all on foot. End quote. The fraternity took its name from Le Puy-en-Valais in Auvergne, the celebrated statue of the Virgin Mary in the cathedral of which place was long a popular object of pilgrimage and devotion during the Middle Ages. Monsieur Aymard, administrator of the city of Le Puy-en-Velay, and the historian of the Confrérie de Notre-Dame de Puy, is of the opinion that the document in the Liber Customarum is at once more full and more ancient by far than any set of regulations of a similar French fraternity which is known to have survived to our times. Societies of the Puy flourished in Normandy and Picardy. The place of the meeting of the companions is not known. 
but Mr. Riley suggests that it was possibly in the Vintry. There is some uncertainty as to how the fraternity came to an end. Londoners were better supplied with eating houses than their neighbours on the continent, as we learn from the description of the street of cookshops on the Thames side by Fitzstephen. Quote, there is also in London, on the bank of the river, amongst the wine shops, which are kept in ships and cellars, a public eating house. There every day, according to the season, may be found viands of all kind, roast, fried and boiled, fish, large and small, coarser meat for the poor, and more delicate for the rich, such as venison, fowls, and small birds. If friends, wearied with their journey, should unexpectedly come to a citizen's house, and, being hungry, should not like to wait till fresh meat be bought and cooked. Meanwhile, some run to the riverside, and there everything that they could wish for is instantly procured. However great the number of soldiers and strangers that enters or leaves the city at any hour of the day or night, they may turn in there if they please, and refresh themselves according to their inclination so that the former have no occasion to fast too long, or the latter to leave the city without dining. Those who wish to indulge themselves would not desire a sturgeon, or a bird of Africa, or the godwit of Ionia, when the delicacies that are to be found there are set before them. This, indeed, is the public cookery, and is very convenient to the city, and a distinguishing mark of civilization. End quote. Mr. Riley points out in his introduction to the Liber Customarum that the coquina of Fitzstephen was in reality a cook's row, not merely a solitary cookshop. In Fitz Aylwin's second assize, twelve twelve, the cookshops on the Thames were ordered to be whitewashed and plastered, and the inner partitions to be removed, from which it would appear that lodging rooms had been quote, constructed for the harbouring of guests and travellers in contravention of the city regulations, which at all times during the thirteenth and two succeeding centuries strictly forbade cooks and pie-bakers to keep hostels for the entertainment of guests. In the fourteenth century, however, most of these cookshops had made way for genuine hostels and herbergeries, to be kept only by freemen and on no account by foreigners though we find mention made of one or two cookshops lingering on the city margin of the Thames so late as the reign of Edward III. End quote. Mr. Riley adds in his glossary, quote, To the celebrity which London gained at an early period for its cookshops, its citizens were not improbably indebted for their nickname of Cockney, one which they have retained throughout England to the present day. The earliest recorded instance of its use is probably of this same period. The rhyme uttered, according to Camden, by Hugh Bigot, Earl of Norfolk, in reference to Henry II, the capital of whose English dominions was London. Were I in my castle of Bungay, upon the river of Waveney, I would no care for the king of Cockney. Keepers of wine taverns and alehouses and victuallers who merely sold provisions, do not appear to have lodged their guests any more than the cooks. The persons whose business it was to receive guests for profit appear to have been divided into two classes, the hostelers and the herbergers. The line of distinction between these two classes is not very evident, 
but it seems not improbable that it consisted in the fact that the former lodged and fed the servants and horses of their guests, while the latter did not. At all events, hostelers are mentioned as supplying hay and corn for horses, but herbages never. End quote. Hostelers were also forbidden to sell drink and victuals to any other than their guests. The established charge for a night's lodging about the time of Henry IV was one penny per night. Quote, In the times of our early kings, when they moved from place to place, it devolved upon the marshal of the king's household to find lodgings for the royal retinue and dependents, which was done by sending a billet and seizing arbitrarily the best houses and mansions of the locality, turning out the inhabitants, and marking the houses so selected with chalk, which latter duty seems to have belonged to the sergeant-chamberlain of the king's household. The city of London, fortunately for the comfort and independence of its inhabitants, was exempted by numerous charters from having to endure this most abominable annoyance at such times as it pleased the king to become its near neighbour by taking up his residence in the town. End quote. By an act, 7 Edward VI, 1553, 40 taverns and public houses were allowed in the city and three in Westminster. End of chapter 6. End of section 10. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.